The sun had barely risen in the sky, and the gathered Dutch crowd could see their breath against the cold morning air, and a rope hung grimly in the distance. And the castle gate groaned as it released its prisoner, and a withered scholar, now in poor layman's clothes, was presented before the public. Again, he was asked to recount, and again, he did not. And so Dutch state authorities rushed in, shackled his feet to the bonfire, fastened his neck to the iron chain, and thrust the woven noose around his throat. A great silence fell before the inevitable. And with one final, very loud and very heartfelt prayer, the man interceded for the one who had ensured his execution. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. What was this grave man's crime? That he might be exiled from his home, strangled to death, and then publicly burnt. The 16th century man, William Tyndale, was guilty of living for the word of God. Guilty of living for the word of God and not concurring with King Henry VIII's divorce. But more importantly, guilty of living for the word of God and so translating the Bible from common to common English from Latin. Because he wanted all to know the gospel. But as I read Tyndale's biography again this week, I asked myself, why? Why would a man be willing to lose it all? Why not just nod to a royal divorce? Why not just nod to a Latin Bible? Well, in a sense, for Tyndale, the answer lay 15 years before his execution. For in 1521, William Tyndale started to frequent a pub just a few miles down the road from my parents' house. And in that pub, the White Horse Inn, Tyndale started to see that Christians were those who lived for God's word alone. Previously, Tyndale was a, was a proud, rather people-pleasing man. A man who lived for his own word and for whatever word was popular at the time. As a child, he looked for the praises of his teachers. As a priest, the, the praises of his congregation. And as a scholar, the praises of those in academia. But as he studied the word of God in that pub, he came increasingly gripped by the need to live for the word of God alone, whatever the cost. And hence the need to give to give the word of God to uneducated people, people very unlike himself, such that they could live by God's word too. And so from 1521 onwards, Tyndale accepted great persecution in life because of God's word. He suffered great loss in prison and yet continued to pray, resting in God's word until his very last day when he was executed and finally protected from the words of that king and brought home to the King and the Word, Jesus, his Lord and Savior. Tyndale lived for the Word of God. And so, my friend, what about you here this morning? It's not 1521, it's 2021, and we find ourselves not in the Netherlands, but in Nashville. And thanks in part to William Tyndale, we hold English Bibles in our hands right now, and thankfully, it is not a crime to read it. But let me ask you as we begin, as you hold those words in your hands right now, would you say that you are living for them? 
Do you stand by them? No matter what may come, do you long to see them proclaimed, no matter what the cost? Friends, whose words do you delight in and deliver? Whose books do, do, you, do you read and then tell everyone else about? Whose counsel are you following and, and sharing? Whose words would the crowd say that you lived for? Perhaps the crowd boos the words that you live for. Perhaps the people in power await your recantation. Perhaps you feel that the rope of popular opinion tightening around your neck. Perhaps you're considering changing the words that you live by. Perhaps you're contemplating turning back to the word of your own reason or experience, to the word of the popular or, or the powerful. Whose word will you live for? And friends, if the answer to that question is very obvious to you, why? Why do you live for those words? What is your motivation for holding on to them in life and in loss? What could be your motivation for letting them go? In our passage this morning, in this very real tale told by the historian Luke, we meet two very different characters, two characters living for two very different words. And the first man is Peter. And if you've been following along in our Acts series so far, uh, you'll know him. In fact, even if you haven't been with us, you probably have heard of the apostle Peter. Peter was one of uh, Jesus' closest friends, uh, a friend who forsook uh, Jesus when he was arrested, and yet a friend who was forgiven by Jesus. For Peter, as promised by Christ, was his rock, the rock on which he built his church. And so in spite of Peter's seeming inability to be rock solid, Peter was told by the risen Lord Jesus to be a William Tyndale, to feed his sheep and to give them life by his word, no matter what the cost. And hence, as we've seen in the book of Acts so far, it has been Peter who has been at the very forefront of this unstoppable global feeding program. As we've seen in recent weeks, the word of God has gone out by the hand of Peter, and the good news of Jesus Christ dying in humanity's place, that which we have sung about this morning, has nourished the souls of the spiritually weary. Peter proclaimed God's word in Jerusalem, Acts 2. And many Jews, just like him, accepted eternal life. Peter proclaimed God's word in Judea, in Acts 4, and many Jews, like him, accepted eternal life. Peter proclaimed God's word in Samaria in, in, in chapter 8. And many more Jews like him accepted eternal life. And most amazingly, in Acts chapters 10 and 11, which we looked at recently, Peter even proclaimed God's word to people unlike him. Just like William Tyndale, who was so passionate about the uneducated hearing God's word. So Peter took God's word to the Gentiles, to those who, who had no word of Jewish Hebrew so that they could find life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as our Acts narrative continues again this week, it is perhaps of no surprise to us that one of our characters is Peter, a man who lived for God's word. But also in this chapter, we meet another man, a man whose brief cameo appearance uh, in this book is interwoven with Peter's kind of final act in this book. And a little bit like William Tyndale and King Henry VIII, this second man is also a king, a king who lived for his own word, 
a king who lived for the world's words, a king who clearly loved the sound of his own voice almost as much as the praise of the world. And so our stage is set. Our stage is set this morning. Before us, we meet Peter and we meet Herod. And yet they're purposely intertwined stories here, are not here for our amusement or our entertainment, but rather for our admonition and encouragement. For every one of us here, every one of us will live and lose and take our last breath just like one of these two characters. Well, the Bible tells us that really, really there are only two words to live by. And so only two types of actor on the stage of life. For there are those who live for the director and live by his script and those who decide to write their own lines. Peter and Herod embody that central question. Whose word will you live for? And so let us study these two characters carefully and and contrast them with caution and let us remind ourselves of what life looks like for them. Acts chapter 12, starting at verse 1. Do look down there. About that time, King Herod laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. That's the Passover. And when Herod had seized Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. These opening four verses, what contrast do we we see in their lives because of the word that they live for? Point one this morning, whose word in life, persecution, or praise? Whose word in life, persecution or praise? Now, having spent the last few weeks in chapters 10 and 11, and having looked at the first nine chapters some time ago, you'd be forgiven for thinking that the hardship that marked the opening chapters of Acts have now all but disappeared. Indeed, with the recent news that the church's enemies, people like Paul, have been baptized and that the gospel has now flowed even to the Gentiles, it would be very reasonable to think that God's word had now hit such a a high tide mark that anyone who stood against the church would instantly just be washed away like a twig in a flood. But that is not what happens here, is it? For in the first few lines, we get a significant setback. Verse 2, James, the brother of John, is killed by Herod. One of the inner three. Peter, James, John, is now dead. And moreover, James is killed with the sword. It was a method of execution reserved for treason. This is not like the killing of Stephen in Acts 7, a church deacon stoned in the streets by a religious mob. This was the death of James, a key preacher of the word, executed by the state. And who was next? Verse 3, Herod then arrested Peter. The church's chief proclaimer of God's word is thrown into prison and he awaits the death penalty after the Passover. And so what do we learn here right from the get-go? Well, quite simply, friends, we are reminded that living for the word of God means persecution in life. 
If you're not much of a geographer or a historian, maybe that may come as a surprise to you, but I promise you, opposition is the norm for Christians. We may not live in the first century like Peter, or in the 16th century like Tyndale, with King Herod's and King Henry's prowling around, but most Christians, most Christians around the world today know that 2 Timothy 3.12 is still true. All who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. And so the opening four verses of this chapter simply paint the, the prevailing picture of Scripture. In life, believers are to expect persecution when they live for God's word. But like many of us who are Christians, it was a lesson that, that, that Peter and James were, were rather slow to learn. Or in his early days of following Jesus' words, James, just like Peter, assumed that the earthly life with Jesus would bring about much earthly glory. Indeed, in Mark chapter 10 that Bill read to us earlier, James and his brother once sidled up to Jesus and asked for positions of great earthly power and great glory. Jesus responded, can you drink the cup that I drink? Can you drink the cup of humanity's evil and not understanding the metaphor? And thinking this cup was some sort of maybe royal chalice containing the finest Pinot Noir rather than blood, James says, of course. To which Jesus replied, perhaps thinking ahead to Acts chapter 12, well, James, you shall drink that cup. For the one that you follow came to serve, not to be served, and to give his life as a ransom for many. James' execution here is, is obviously not an atoning sacrifice for sin like Jesus' was, but in following in the footsteps of his Savior, James would so serve the people with God's word that he would give his very life. Accordingly, friends, if you are a Christian here, or perhaps someone maybe who's thinking about becoming a Christian, I hope that you have grasped that. I hope that somebody here has been honest enough to tell you that the true Christian life is a hard life. For the Bible does not shy away from that, like some sort of sneaky small print on some insurance document. No, Jesus was very upfront with his followers. He said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. You'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. Persecution will come because of my word. As Rico Tice, the ex-rugby player, now London evangelist, recently said, Christianity today means getting hit. If you share God's word, you're going to get hurt. There is a pain line that needs to be crossed if you tell someone the gospel. In the UK, I think we are pretty much at the point where to hold Christian values and to speak Christian truth is to get hated. And in the US, that seems to be where it is heading. And some of you are already there, aren't you? Some of you here have bosses who are enraged because you live for God's word. They're enraged by your medical ethics, which make you sometimes say no to certain things. They're enraged by your honesty, which stops you from cheating the clients. Some of you here have family members who are incensed because you live for God's word. They are incensed with you because you won't join in a racist life that you left behind for Christ. 
They're incensed with you because you tell your children about God's design for sex and gender. Others here have neighbors and classmates who are angry because you live according to God's word. They're angry when when you invite their Muslim spouse to church. They're angry when you politely question their atheism or when you ask what they think Jesus was doing on the cross. My friends, if that's you, if you experience such a life because of God's word, please let this picture comfort you. Let this picture commend you. And let those wounds which you receive from others, in a sense, give you confidence that you are living like Christ, a life lived for his word. Conversely, conversely, if you call yourself a Christian, but you've never experienced any persecution at all, for the sake of God's word, then it might be worth you considering again, whose words am I really living for? Because you see, there is evidently another way to live here. For in contrast to James and Peter, in these opening verses, we meet a man who lives according to his own word, whose word in life results not in persecution, but praise. Verse 3, when Herod saw that this, that is his words and decrees, pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter. And so can you imagine, can you, can you imagine what would happen if you were to take a kind of cross-section of this party on this Passover evening. Below the ground is a man of God's word in prison, punched and abused by common soldiers, but above the ground is a man of his own word in a palace praised and applauded by connected socialites. Indeed, if you look down with me to verse 20, you'll see that this was was the very consistent way that, that Herod operated in his life. For later on in this count, Herod also gives the people of Tyre and Sidon exactly what they want as well. He sees that he can please them with great words in order that he might receive great praise. And so in all his pomp, he delivers a fine speech all about food provision and peace in the land, such that his subjects basically worship him. Verse 22, they shouted, the voice of a God, not of a man. You see, this Herod is a a bit of a chip off the old block. Well, just like his great, his grandfather, Herod the Great, who decreed that Jesus the baby, God's word incarnate, should be killed, and, and just like his uncle, Herod Antipas, who decreed that Jesus the adult, God's word incarnate, should be crucified, this Herod too is all about God's word being extinguished so that his own word might be extolled. And friends, let me be very honest with you. That way of life is open to you this morning. In fact, it's actually not too difficult to manufacture that kind of life. If you listen carefully enough to what people want, you too can get people worshipping you for your words. A life of a William Tyndale or a James or a Peter is not the only way to go in life. Listen carefully enough to the world. And speak what the world wants you to say, and you will be praised by the world in most situations. Indeed, in 2021, in all the cultural waters that we swim in, it's actually relatively easy for us to build up that kind of symbiotic relationship. A symbiotic relationship, a little bit like in the movie Finding Nemo. We kind of exist like Nemo's dad, if you remember him. 
living a kind of, like a, like a clownfish in a sea anemone, protecting our surroundings, as a clownfish does for a sea anemone, and being protected by our surroundings, as a sea anemone does for a clownfish. Being protected by the world with our proclamations, and the world protecting us with its praise. That is the safe place that the politician King Herod lived in, and it's how we may live too. The Bible, ever honest with us, presents us with that choice. Whose word in life, persecution or praise? And so, friend, again, as you look at your life honestly, which character here best reveals you? Whose word are you living for? But sometimes, sometimes it's life, it's hard to tell, isn't it? Some days will go by without any persecution and without much praise. Indeed, when all is well, it's sometimes hard to tell the difference between the one who, who lives for God's word and the one who lives for their own word. Accordingly, there's another a second revealing aspect of this story, another way that reveals whose word we live by. And it is highlighted by both of these characters in loss. And so second point this morning, whose word in loss, prayer or pride? Whose word in loss, prayer or pride? And the first few verses, it's very clear that, the people, that Peter and God's people are, are losing, aren't they? The church may have been up by one in the first, but now they are definitely down in this innings. Indeed, James is dead and Peter is on death row. In fact, if you look down to verse 4 and to verse 6, Luke underscores just how hopeless this situation is for those who live by the word. For Peter is not just tied up with some old rope by some kind of bungling baddies. No, look at verse 4. Peter is in prison with four squads of guards. That is a total of 16 trained Roman marines. Indeed, verse 6, Peter had to sleep between two of these soldiers and all while bound with a chain and a backup chain and with sentinels also guarding his door. The situation is utterly hopeless. He has lost. And so we may imagine Peter to be pleading with his captors now and the church calling the best defense lawyers they can. But when all is lost, that is not what those who live by the word do. Verse 5, Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Likewise, verse 12, many were gathered together and were praying. In times of evident loss, the people of the word pray. Prayer is the natural outworking, actually, of our trust in God's word. Indeed, I would say that the degree of confidence that one has in God's word is normally directly equivalent to how much one prays. If you're wondering whose word you live by, why not start calculating how sore your knees are? For nothing reveals your heart like prayer does. For those who live for God's word, pray. And they pray particularly in loss. Accordingly, when the chips are down here, the, the, the church calls not, not the governor of the state, but the governor of the whole world. Despite all the restlessness that they must have felt the church rests in God's word. They pray that their preacher, Peter, might be released. They pray that God's word might continue to go out even if he is to suffer the same fate as James and then they rest in God's word. 
They don't actually seem to have much hope for Peter. After all, when Peter is released, knocks on the door, and Rhoda opens it, she thinks he's a ghost, and they think she's out of her mind. Nevertheless, they pray. They pray and they rest, they trust, and they leave God with the results. Indeed, what is Peter doing? What is Peter doing as they pray? Is Peter plotting some kind of great escape? Is Peter penning that the church leadership succession plan? Is Peter panicking, thinking that he is trusted in the wrong word? No, Peter has already finished his prayers, and he is soundly asleep. Verse 7, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in his cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. It's a few hours. It's a few hours before a brutal execution. And yet like a parent stirring their, their teenage child on a Saturday morning, an angel of the Lord has to, has to shine this great blinding light into his bedroom and, and give him a great whack and wake him up. Friends, what a beautiful picture. The prayer and the rest that one may find amid lost when they live by God's word. God's people pray and then they peacefully fall asleep. As the old hymn goes, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. The church prayed, and they rested in the knowledge that whatever the loss, that God, the gospel would win out. And friends, that is the same underlying confidence that you and I may have when it looks like God's word is losing all around us, when we're losing our standing with our colleagues because we stand for the truth of God's word when we're losing that the love of our friends because we try to counsel them with God's word, when we are losing the patience of our children because we seek to share the gospel again at the dinner table. For friends, we are not to read this account. We're not to read this account and think that if we pray to God and rest in his word, that all will work out for our own ease and pleasure. Yes, Peter ended up being miraculously slaved, but James was executed with a sword and Tyndale was strangled and then burned. Listen, the purpose of this whole narrative is not to teach us that that Peter's win, but that God's word wins. God's word wins no matter what we may lose. Friends, as I shared earlier, when William Tyndale was facing great loss, the loss of his life, Tyndale prayed, not Lord, open my chains, But Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Lord, let the king of England see that your word should be heard by all. And amazingly, that very prayer was answered. Tyndale was not set free, but God's word was. For in that same year, it became legal to translate the Bible into English. Indeed, by 1538, King Henry VIII had actually issued a decree commanding that every church parish buy a copy of God's word based on Tyndale's own translation and place it in some convenient place for all to see and read. In loss, those who live for God's word pray and then they rest, trusting that God's word will achieve its purposes no matter how it may look in any given circumstance. But in contrast, what of the one who lives by their own word? What do they do in loss? Well, again, this narrative obliges us for whilst at dusk it looks like to all the world that that Peter has lost to Herod, as the day dawns, all the world sees that Herod 
has lost Peter. Verse 18. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance amongst the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Peter's steadfast reliance in God's word that evening is only matched by Herod's steadfast reliance on his own word the next day. Now, one may have thought that having seen the might of God's word, having seen the chains on the floor, having seen the locks of the gate untouched, having interviewed those frantic guards, having witnessed an obvious miracle that Herod might just bow the knee to God's powerful word. But alas, this embarrassing loss before the people only causes Herod to proudly double down on his own word's power. He sentences the soldiers to the sword, and he sulks off to Sidon to make a stirring speech. And friends, have you ever noticed that that is often what those who trust their own words do when the power of the word is revealed to them? When Jesus' resurrection is explained to them? when their friend's life is is turned around miraculously by the gospel, when a Christian amazingly forgives them, or something happens which can only be explained by the power of the gospel. Sadly, often then in pride, their own word is reasserted. The power of of the word of God is revealed, but they then employ their own word to laugh, claiming control with a joke. They lash out, trying to exert their own might, or they simply leave and move somewhere else where they will be heard. You see, the sad truth of this tale is that the release of Peter was actually God's kindness to Herod. God's gift that morning, you know, it went beyond a gift to the church. God's gift to Herod that morning was the knowledge that his words were limited. But in pride, Herod leaves the wrapping paper on. And so again, my unbelieving friend here this morning, what about you? Have you ever considered, have you ever considered that loss in your life might just be God's gift to you? That some humiliating public failure might be just God's way of helping you to see that, that there is a deficiency in your word? That, that when a Christian who you are way smarter than, somehow wriggles out of the trap that you've set for them and then presents the the gospel so simply to you that that might be from God. Indeed, with the proud Herod held up to a mirror like you now, maybe for someone here, today is the day when you recognize the gift of such loss, when you finally hang up your crown and you stop relying on your own word and start humbly resting in the firm foundation of the true king. But you know, for all of the comparative pictures in life and in loss here for for Peter and for Herod in this chapter, no picture provides a starker contrast as the picture of what happens on their last day. And so third and final point this morning very quickly. Whose word at last? Protection or punishment. Whose word at last? Protection or punishment. Now, for much of this story, we presume that we are reading all about Peter's last day. Well, this chapter, as as many commentators point out, 
has so many parallels with Jesus' last day. There's a Herod on the throne, it's Passover, God's man is in prison, and about to be brought out to the people. But Peter is protected from death and decay. Indeed, after almost sleepwalking his way out of jail, Peter comes to his senses and he says, verse 11, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angels and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. The people were expecting an execution, the end of Peter. But an angel, a messenger of God's word, protects Peter from death and decay. And the depiction of Peter's assumed last day is a depiction of the actual last day for all who live according to God's word. For the protection that Peter is given here reminds us not that those who live for God's word will not die an earthly death. Of course not. All Christians die. Everybody dies. But the protection that Peter is given here reminds us that those who live for God's word will be protected from an eternal punishment. Psalm 16. Protect me, O God, for I take refuge in you. My body also rests securely, for you will not abandon me to death, nor will you allow your faithful one to see decay. My friend, that is the central promise of the gospel. Central promise of God's word that if you trust in his word as Jesus, the very word of God did, then just like Jesus, you shall be protected ultimately from death and decay. You may be persecuted, you may be put in prison, you may be put to death, but you will be protected from everlasting destruction, punishment. And friends, for some of you here, that's key. Because your last day is nearly here, and you're nearly home, and you think about death probably about as much as Peter does. Christian, keep trusting in God's word. He will protect you in death as he protected his very own son. For as Peter himself famously said in John 6, Lord, whose word shall we go to? You have words of eternal life. Whose words will you be living for on your last day? God's word will ensure your protection. But in the final contrast, what of Herod? As I said previously, we begin this chapter believing that a crowd shall witness Peter's last day. But by the end of the chapter, we realize that a crowd shall witness Herod's last day. Verse 21, please follow along with me. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give the glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. The irony is thick, is it not? In spite of just being shown that the great power of God's word, Herod still believes that he is on the throne. Herod still believes that that he will provide for his people. Herod still believes that his words carry divine weight. The words of a God, not the words of a man, shout for his subjects. 
but his very best day is his very last day. He refuses to give the glory to God, and all the beauty of those royal robes cannot hide the parasitic worms which pour forth from his corpse. It's a frightening, and it is a gruesome picture. Indeed, it was so frightening and so gruesome that actually many other Roman historians, just like Josephus, also record this first century event happening. And nobody in history records any of Herod's words, but everybody in history records Herod's worms. And God in his mercy meant it to be a horrific picture, to act as a warning for every person in history. For that is what shall happen on the last day. For those who live for their own words and not for God's. For again, there are only two choices when it comes to God's word. Either it will strike you in life such that you live for it. Or it will strike you at the last such that you will die by it. And did you notice Did you notice that that the difference between Peter and Herod when it comes to God's word? The angel of the Lord comes to them both. A messenger of God's word comes to both men, and the text says that both were struck by it. Verse 7, an angel of the Lord struck Peter on the side and woke him up saying, get up. And verse 23, an angel of the Lord struck Herod down contrast between Herod's word and God's word is hence underscored poignantly in verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And so my friend, won't you please see the obvious point of this entire passage? God's word wins, but the words of kings will not last. In life, you may receive persecution, not praise. In loss, you may turn to prayer and rather than great power. But at the last, God's word wins. God's word wins. Whose word will you live for? Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we, we thank you and praise you so much for your unstoppable word. Father, we thank you that in your kindness it has reached our hands and our ears this very day. Father, we thank you for your Son, the very embodiment of your word, one who trusted you until the end. Father, we thank you for those in history who lost it all so that we could hold it in our hands. And Father, we pray this morning for all who are persecuted because of your word this day, whether that be people in this room or whether that be brothers and sisters in far-off lands. Father, in increasingly tough days, would you help us to keep living for your word praying that your word would work and resting in the results that come from you 
until you call us home, whenever that may be. And Father, for any here this morning that do not know you, Father, we pray that their hearts will be quickened by the example of the dreadful Herod. Father, may nobody leave this place having not understood his life and death. And Father, in this place right now, would you rescue many from their own words, bring many to rely on the foundation and the rock, which is your word. And we ask and we pray it for your glory and for our good. Amen.